is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts or find them at HeidiHarris.com. This last week on my Sunday night show in St. Louis at 97.1 FM Talk, Sunday night, 7 to 9 in St. Louis, I had Dr. Kelly Victory join me again. She's always got hashtag facts, not fear about COVID. We talked about a lot of things, including whether or not children should get vaccinated, how long this has been tested. Always great to catch up with Dr. Kelly Victory. And I apologize for my end of the audio. I did not realize until I was putting this podcast together that apparently when I went over the air, it sounded like I was in a closet or something. So uh, very sorry about that, but focus on the content. Okay. Okay. Dr. Kelly Victory, welcome to the Heidi Harris Show. Glad to have you again. Hey, Heidi. So good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot has happened since the last time we talked. Now, it looks like, what, Pfizer's come out with some kind of miracle pill that's going to mitigate some of the uh, severity of this disease. Well, that's great news, right? Well, there are so many things I, I want to say about this, Heidi. Uh, first of all, I am always um, in, in favor of innovation in healthcare. Uh, that said, I find it fascinating that the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and others, um, have been frantic to come up with a new treatment, a new pill, uh, something they can get across the finish line for COVID when we have existing a multitude of very safe, highly effective FDA-approved, inexpensive medications that we know treat COVID already. Uh, we're not allowed to speak their names for, you know, fear of being canceled or, or called a quack or a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. But you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and zinc and vitamin D and all the things that we have learned over these past 22 months are very, very safe. So while I uh, am interested in whether or not Pfizer actually has uh, crafted a new drug that will be effective, a lot remains to be seen. It's a brand new drug, and we have very, very little, if any, safety data on it yet. Um, Likewise, Merck came out with one that was just recently uh, approved in the UK, has not been FDA approved yet in the U.S., but they just um, ran a new one up the flagpole, malnupiravir. Uh, and likewise, it's a drug that's meant to treat COVID. Uh, it remains to be seen how effective it is and more importantly, or as importantly, how safe it is. Um, and so I think we should address them cautiously perhaps, but don't forget we already have existing drugs that are very effective in treating COVID. Yeah, but we've always got that horse dewormer, right? Which is always so funny to me because you have horses and you're a doctor and you've used ivermectin on people and horses, which is hilarious. Here's the best part about the, you know, the ivermectin being the horse dewormer. <laughs> ivermectin was, was uh, you know, discovered by Merck. And when it was uh, under patent, Merck made a bazillion dollars on it uh, as both a horse dewormer and as a human medication to treat lice and river blindness and other things. It's been off patent for many, many years, and therefore nobody can make any money on it because it costs about three cents a pill. Interestingly, (laughs) uh, Merck's new drug, their new wonder drug, malnupiravir, which is going to cost thousands of dollars, isn't actually a new drug. It was discovered by Merck back in 2014 as, wait for it, a treatment for equine encephalitis. 
What? More horse drugs? Doctor, I can't believe it. So you won't hear that in the mainstream media, but this is this is Merck's second horse drug that is going to be repurposed. Uh, and we do this all the time in human medicine. There's much crossover between veterinary uh, medications and human medications. Um, so to call, I, I say all of this very uh, much tongue-in-cheek, to refer to ivermectin as a horse medication is painfully <laughs> absurd. Uh, we have lots of medications in human medicine that have application in veterinary medicine as well. It's truly amazing the way the media folks will mischaracterize something. They'll just give it a certain name and everybody buys into it without even asking questions. Exactly. And likewise, if you look at um, hydroxychloroquine, you're talking about a drug that has been FDA approved for more than six and a half decades since the 1940s, we have reams and reams of safety data on, on hydroxychloroquine. It's taken by hundreds of millions of people globally every year with essentially zero ill effect. It's one of the safest drugs we have. Yet when we started talking about using it to treat COVID, you would have thought that we were out sort of, you know, a bunch of mass murderers uh, and malpracticianers. People start saying, oh, my gosh, there are all these side effects. Thinking, really? There are hundreds of millions of people who take this drug every year. And frankly, uh, Anthony Fauci and the CDC and the FDA knew from the very beginning that hydroxychloroquine was likely an effective treatment for COVID. After all, the NIH under Anthony Fauci wrote a paper about it back in 2005 um, after the first SARS outbreak in, uh, in 2003. So they knew and they wrote a paper entitled Chloroquine and Hydroxychloroquine are Effective Treatments Against SARS-CoV-1. So they already knew that, that hydroxychloroquine would be effective and they know that ivermectin is effective. But as I said, Unfortunately, if no one stands to make any money on it, um, it isn't going to get any traction. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's criminal if people are dying because somebody's not going to make a buck off of a pill with, without a patent. Some doctors are saying 85% of the people who've died of COVID didn't have to had they had early intervention. No, and I think that, that, that those numbers are, are correct. We have been experiencing uh, an element of therapeutic nihilism uh, for the entirety of this pandemic that I have never seen before in my entire career in medicine or in public health. Um, we have people who go to the hospital, are diagnosed with COVID and sent home being told that there's no treatment and they should come back when they essentially can't breathe. They end up getting admitted to the ICU and many, many of them we know died who didn't need to die. There isn't just a single drug. It's not just ivermectin or just hydroxychloroquine. It's a cocktail of medicines that we now have tremendous experience with. Uh, it includes those two, but then other things like vitamin D and zinc and quercetin and steroids, both oral steroids and inhaled steroids. Uh, blood thinners to keep people from developing clots related to the spike protein, lots of things. But had we actually been able to treat people and hadn't been shut down and canceled and been disallowed from prescribing, we would have had tens of thousands of lives saved. If people are interested, they can go to the website earlycovidcare.org. Uh, not only are those treatment protocols listed there, but there's a very rich library of resources of studies. Now, 107 published studies documenting the power of natural immunity to COVID. 
meaning that people like you and, and me um, who have had COVID and recovered have very broad, robust, and enduring immunity. We have 107 published studies listed on the website. Likewise, we have studies about the ineffectiveness of masks uh, and the the multitude, as I said, of treatment options, uh, including the studies supporting ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory. I saw a story about a woman who was a healthcare provider who was let go from Kaiser uh, in California, the Kaiser system, because she wouldn't get the vaccine. But the interesting thing buried in the article was that 93% of the people who work there have been vaccinated. Well, then shouldn't that be herd immunity? I mean, shouldn't that be something they don't have to worry about for the 7% who aren't vaccinated, doctor? Well, first of all, when you take into account what I just was talking about with regard to natural immunity, Heidi, we have somewhere in the range of 48 million Americans have tested positive for COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. The CDC uh, estimates that that may be off by a factor of somewhere between five and six, meaning five times more people have actually had it. That would put us in the range of 250 million Americans who've already had and recovered from COVID. When you add into that the millions of people who've already been vaccinated, you're darn right. We are pretty close to, if not at, herd immunity. More importantly, the very concept of taking any uh, worker and telling him or her who after months and months and months of being out there on the front line, we were hailed. They were having ticker tape parades for healthcare workers uh, all last year. Now, because we were the ones showing up to work when there was no vaccine, when there was nothing but risk. Now, all of a sudden, we're the pariah. Now, all of a sudden, we're a threat to humanity because we're not vaccinated and we can't work at hospitals or clinics um, without being vaccinated. That's patently absurd. Not only is it offensive, it's just it's very dangerous. We are in the middle still of this crisis. We now have a huge uptick in delayed uh, incidence of cancers and heart disease and diabetes and all sorts of things because of the lockdown. This is not the time to be laying off healthcare workers. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory, and they're still, doctor, not really doing anything for it. I have a friend who was diagnosed with COVID. She and her husband the other day, they're in their 50s. He may be a little older, but the doctor didn't do anything for them. Nothing. Don't come into the office. Didn't prescribe anything. So they're just sitting home suffering. If this was such a horrible thing that was going to kill everybody, you'd think they'd say, oh, get in here right away. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. But obviously that's not the case. And that backs up what you've been saying all along again. As I as I said, it is therapeutic nihilism. It's wrong. I've never seen it before. We have lots of ways to treat this. You have not heard one public health official from the beginning of this pandemic talk about anything other than vaccines. What about all the things that people could be doing to decrease their risk of ever contracting COVID? Things like supplementing vitamin D. The literature is replete with studies showing that just getting your vitamin D levels up can decrease your chances of contracting and certainly being hospitalized with COVID by more than 50%. Given the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in the United States, we're talking about 80% of African-Americans, 50% of Hispanics, and upwards of 30% of Caucasians are vitamin D deficient. That simple step could make you know, decrease your chances of contracting COVID. Yet you haven't heard a single person, not, not Rochelle Walensky, you haven't heard Fauci say it, none of them. 
other than age, Heidi, and there's unfortunately nothing you can do about that. You can't roll the clock back. Um, but other than age, the single biggest risk factor for a lousy outcome from COVID is obesity. Yet you haven't heard a single public health official talk about that. And that's just, it's this singular focus on just vaccines. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anything but. But I, I certainly know that we have never in the history of medicine rolled out a vaccine program in the middle of a pandemic. And we have never relied on vaccines as a way to get us out of a pandemic. But to your point, the larger issue is that we have an unhealthy population of people. We've got obesity in huge numbers. We've got people who smoke. And the public health officials, politicians, you know, media folk, nobody will actually address that because I guess they feel like they're going to be shaming somebody or something. But, you know, the truth is the truth. Exactly. And I can say uh, with some certainty that it is very likely that the um, disparities we are seeing in terms of outcomes from COVID uh, in the black and Hispanic communities are largely attributable to the fact that there's an increased incidence of both diabetes and obesity in those communities. And on top of that, they have the um, that increased incidence of vitamin D deficiency. Those three things contribute to being at much higher risk. So why haven't our leaders been out there really coaching and educating these communities, getting them vitamin D supplementation, working with them on the two biggest health risks, obesity and diabetes, that are associated with lousy outcomes from COVID? Instead, it's just hide in the basement, wear your mask, bathe in Purell and wait for your vaccine, and then you're, you know, booster after booster. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Victory, hashtag facts not fear. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Victory. She's got a great website. It's called earlycovidcare.org. Check it out for information and intervention, things that will help you early on so you don't wind up on a ventilator and all that. You know, I continue to be amazed, doctor, at the people who buy into the lie that herd immunity is something that continues to change. You know, the numbers continue to change on that or that there's absolutely no recognition at all with some of these people that anybody's already had COVID and recovered from it. I mean, I just don't understand. Never before or has this been completely ignored or not considered a legitimate issue to discuss? You've already had it, therefore you're good, right? No, that's exactly right. In fact, the World Health Organization changed the definition of herd immunity on their website in November of last year. After 20-some years of having the definition include two key components, Herd immunity is made up of people who have had and recovered from the illness and people who have been vaccinated from that illness. That's what herd immunity has always been. In November of 2020, the World Health Organization changed the definition of herd immunity to only include those people who are vaccinated. That's insanity. That is not science. That is entirely political and to meet a political agenda. We, when people have had chickenpox, we don't require them to get vaccinated for chickenpox. If you've had measles, you're not required or even recommended to get vaccinated for measles. Okay, when you have had something already, you have immunity. And we know the great thing about this, 
we have tons of studies now that show that natural immunity is actually far stronger uh, than immunity that's gleaned from the vaccines. But we had predicted this based again on our experience from SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003. People who had and recovered from SARS back in 2003 have existing, strong, robust immunity to that virus 18 years later, still today. We know that people who recovered, yeah, it's remarkable. So we have every reason to believe, given the similarity of the virus, that people who had COVID-19 would likewise have this immunity. And we've borne it out now. We have studies now that show you've got ongoing T-cell and B-cell immunity still, you know, now 12, 14 months after having had COVID. That's not the case, unfortunately, with the vaccines. That doesn't make me anti-vaccine, Heidi. It makes me pro-science. I'm simply reporting the data as it is. We know that natural immunity beats hands down vaccine-induced immunity for this particular virus. Dr. Victory, let's talk about vaccines for children. How long were they studied? Are they a good idea? Your concerns, doctor. As you said, Heidi, I am uh, very pro-vaccine in general. I've been referred to as a vaccine zealot in the past and have uh, spoken and written prolifically on the importance of getting your kids vaccinated for the typical childhood illnesses. That said, I do have significant concerns about these vaccines. Um, I look at a vaccine as the proverbial three-legged stool where the legs are safety, efficacy, and necessity. So uh, let's start with safety. Um, These vaccines did not exist 12 months ago, and they didn't start to be tested on children until late May or early June of this year. Given it's uh, the first week of November, we've got at best somewhere in the range of four months worth of safety data on these vaccines. Wow. I'm here to tell you, uh, I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm also highly respectful of the complexities of uh, vaccine manufacture and, uh, you know, how we modify and manipulate the immune system. The average vaccine takes four to six years to come to market if it ever comes to market. Most of the childhood vaccines, measles, mumps, polio, chickenpox, were studied for over a decade before they ever achieved FDA approval. And if you take chickenpox, for example, it was 10 years in the testing, finally was FDA approved in 1995, wasn't mandated for children until 2003, another eight years. So by the time that chickenpox vaccine was mandated for kids to go to school, we had nearly two decades of experience with it. So when people say to me, well, you know, what's your big deal, uh, Dr. Kelly, about mandating, you know, a a COVID vaccine, we mandate lots of vaccines. You're right, after we have tons and tons of data on the safety. So the safety leg of this stool is very wobbly. We are seeing concerning incidents of heart damage, specifically myocarditis and pericarditis. The FDA itself I listened to all eight hours of their uh, committee meeting and, and when they were talking about whether or not to recommend this emergency use authorization of these vaccines for children. And even the FDA advisor said, we can't be sure that we won't cause more cases of myocarditis hospitalizations from the vaccine than cases of COVID that we will prevent from being hospitalized. They don't know. 
Um, and this is sort of the public health version of we need to pass the bill to see what's in it. Uh, one of the guys actually said we won't know the true safety of these vaccines until we start giving them. And I think that that is insanity. Then when you look at the wow. effectiveness piece, we, if, let's look at the effectiveness leg of, of the vaccine stool when you're talking about children, particularly children ages 5 to 11. We don't know how effective it is. We know in adults that it certainly does not stop you from contracting COVID. We were told that it was, that we were told it would be 95, 98% effective. Turns out it isn't, that it doesn't stop you from contracting COVID, doesn't stop you from becoming ill with COVID, and it certainly doesn't stop you from spreading it. So right. we don't have any reason to believe that it will be any different for children. And they say, yes, but it can decrease the, the severity of the, of the symptoms and the disease. Now let's get to the third leg, necessity. Here's the newsflash, people. Children don't get significantly ill. So you aren't right. preventing anything because children simply, fortunately, and we should be celebrating this, do not become significantly ill from COVID. We've known that from the very, very beginning, Heidi. Even the CDC, as of you know, this week, only acknowledges 94 total deaths in children between the ages of 5 and 11 with COVID, not from COVID necessarily. Many of them right. had late-stage cancers, complications from diabetes, even trauma. But 94 out of the 28 million children in the United States between the ages of 5 and 11, they say that there are 94 who had COVID when they died. So the necessity leg of this COVID vaccine stool is also wobbly. So it's while I am pro-vaccine, I would be hard-pressed to say that you should rush out and get a healthy 5 to 11-year-old or a 5 to 18-year-old, for goodness sake, vaccinated for COVID. Yep, and I'd love to know who these parents were who uh, offered their kids up to be lab rats. It's frightening. Dr. Kelly Victory, always great to talk to you. Thanks for the time. Every time, follow her on Twitter, Dr. Kelly Victory, and check out earlycovidcare.org. Thanks again, doctor. I so appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me, Heidi. Don't forget to join me every Sunday night live in St. Louis, 97.1 FM Talk, where St. Louis comes to talk. I'm on 7 to 9 p.m. St. Louis time, and of course, you can find my podcast. And I'm also doing a fun thing on the YouTube every day. It's called Headlines with Heidi. I basically sit at my kitchen table in the morning and talk a little bit about some of the headlines of the day. So it's kind of a, you know, 15, 20 minutes on what's going on, just, you know, whatever's happening couple of headlines so i'm enjoying that a lot of people are you can find those youtube videos at heidi harris show on youtube heidi harris show i also post them all at heidiharris.com until we meet again remember you were created for a purpose here's tony scottwell